You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Today, we live at a unique point in human history where data is becoming the new currency. Beyond oil, dollars, and social status, data is emerging as one of the most powerful and consequential currencies around the globe. Technology, computer processing, cloud storage, and artificial intelligence are empowering these data to transform zeros and ones into insightful and even profound realizations about almost every aspect of our lives. I'm John Nosta. And this is FutureDose.tech. Technology, pharmacy, and better healthcare delivery. By creating more efficient, higher quality concierge-like pharmacist services, we can transform from the pharmacist of yesterday into the future provider of pharmacy tomorrow. FutureDose.tech is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, the global leader in pharmacy podcasting, and the largest, most influential network of podcasts about the profession and business of pharmacy. Hello, Pharmacy Podcast listeners. My name is Dave Berkowitz, and you're here with the Future Dose Tech Podcast. And today, I'm so psyched I have on with me Sid Visawanathan from TruePill. You may or may not have heard of TruePill, but they're a cloud pharmacy. And they are sort of the pharmacy behind the scenes for companies you probably have heard of, like his or hers. Um, so I first got connected with Sid, uh, I can't remember, maybe like three years ago or so. I believe, Sid, was your company called PostMeds at the time? That's a little known secret. Not many people are supposed to know about, but yes, <laughs> yes, it was. That was our legal incorporating name, but we, we quickly switched the business uh, I'd say about a year into it, but yeah, yeah you, our interaction predates the company naming. <laughs> Goes back a long way. I guess I let the cat out of the bag there, but <laughs> but that was a while back, and I was not a name for- we're proud of. Let's put it that way. We we switched that real quick once we got the domain for Truepill. Got it. Well, you know, I remember it being like somewhat of a humble operation, but at least a humble beginnings. But I I first got connected, you know, specifically with your technology when our our product manager. Uh, his name was Nathaniel. He provided me the, your API documentation to review in terms of fulfilling our medication uh, needs for our for our product. And that like that was such an aha moment for me, honestly. And and it was one of those when I read the documentation, it was one of those like, ah, how did I not think of this? So, um, so since then, you know, I've been a fan, I've been following your progression and I'm again, really psyched to have you on here. So like to start us off, tell me a little bit about your background. You're not a pharmacist by trade. So what led you, what led you into the pharmacy space? Yeah, Dave, first off, thanks for, thanks for having me on here. And it's interesting. I've been doing startups now for the last 10 years or so, and, and primarily in software and technology. And I sold my last company to, to LinkedIn in 2011. And I left LinkedIn in late 2015. And I wanted to go back to the drawing board to start something again. And along the way, I was tinkering with a number of different spaces and exploring a couple different areas. And along the way is when I met Omar, my, my co-founder, who is a pharmacist. And we had a chance to go really deep into the pharmacy space. And so I got to ask a whole bunch of questions and, and we spent honestly several months trying to dissect the, the current state of retail pharmacy. Omar had, had worked in retail pharmacy for the last 10 years. And through a number of these conversations over several months and in parallel, if you've ever set up a pharmacy, you may know that it takes a good six to 12 months, at least in the state of California to go through your regulatory pathway and then licensing and and your contracting with your insurance providers. And during that time is when we formed the initial thesis of the company, which was what would it look like to build a pharmacy API and who would use it and, and how would they use it? And this was all rooted in the premise that we knew when we got started that we didn't want to be a direct to consumer pharmacy. There were at the time three or four different venture backed companies that were doing different flavors of on-demand pharmacy. And that wasn't interesting to us. We wanted to focus on a different slice of the problem. 
And we felt that the early signs were as, as telehealth continues to take hold and we start to see a number of these new experiences being built, that these telehealth first experiences, they needed a new type of pharmacy. And so we set out to build that. And that was really the founding thesis of the company with uh, some of our earliest customers, as you mentioned, uh, Hims and Hers and uh, a company like Nurex in the women's health space and, and GoodRx, for example. And so that's kind of how we got started in the pharmacy world. Now, was it because your your co-founder was a pharmacist? Is that why you entered for specifically in the pharmacy space first? I would say that's a, a pretty safe bet. I don't think as a a software person, like I woke up and you know had dreams of setting up a pharmacy or many pharmacies across the country now. And so I think that you, you always need sort of a co-founder or a partner in crime that helps you jump into spaces that you otherwise might be scared of or afraid of to, to jump into. And I think that was a great example here of really strong founder market fit in terms of get a software and product guy and myself and Omar as a pharmacist. And you had to do something in the pharmacy space by virtue of Omar's background. And, and for me, it was a great benefit because I consider myself a generalist. I can do a lot of things. Okay. But I can't get really deep on any particular topic. And Oftentimes when you're starting a business or getting started at the earliest stages, you have to dive way below the surface to get to the really meaty problems. And had it not been for Omar educating me on the pharmacy space and going through months and months of just untangling the, the entire industry, just to realize that there was just some basic stuff. And I'm sure we'll, we'll spend a lot of time today talking about APIs and tech, but something as simple as a RESTful API was frankly, revolutionary in pharmacy. And to me, that was like mind blowing coming from a world that I'd seen dominated in software with RESTful APIs. And so there's a bit of an aha moment combined with an industry that I knew nothing about coming into it. And that created this, this moment for me that said, yeah, I want to spend the next years of my life on this problem. And now I'm, I'm four or five years into this problem. And I, I think I'm, I need, I need another five or 10 years at a minimum just to even scratch the surface. It's true. There's so many dis disjointed and disconnected um, pieces of technology in healthcare and pharmacy specifically. Um, and I definitely had that aha moment, like I said, when I read your documentation. And the, my, for my listeners out there, you know, I've already done two shows already on APIs. And um, again, that's a big reason why I had sit on here because I want to promote the adoption of more APIs as it relates to pharmacy. So to remind my listeners, an API, a RESTful API, is just sort of a way computers can talk to each other. A lot of the sort of legacy stack that pharmacy operates on, even today, is based off of um, data exchanges or an EDI feed, which is, which is akin to sort of writing a letter versus having a phone call or a phone call, you say something and someone responds to you. And, and a lot of pharmacy tech right now, it just doesn't operate that way. Um, so I like to bring awareness to, to this fact that the technology itself is kind of archaic compared to, you know, the, the normal day-to-day -day operators, operations of your phone. Um, so, can you explain, say a little bit of how your APIs work and like and what a webhook event is for the listeners? Yeah, for sure. I, th I think before I jump into that, uh, to, to set context on, on what we do as a company and how the APIs have evolved, and I certainly would love to jump into a number of use cases. Um, we are now much larger than just a pharmacy entity. We've expanded into a couple other business units in telehealth and diagnostics. And I think, Dave, what's most interesting maybe is that the same concept of disrupting the pharmacy world with a set of APIs, we've seen that story now play out across every healthcare vertical that we've entered from diagnostics to, to telehealth. And um, when you look at our API docs today and, and see how they've expanded, you'll see that I think you gave a great definition of what an API is. And at a fundamental level, it's for two systems to communicate with each other, as, as you mentioned, but that extends to every part of healthcare. When you're trying to connect a patient to a provider for a doctor consult, or you're trying to dispense a lab test. Well, if you put your hat on for a second on what is, what does a pharmacy API mean? It is simply moving a pill or a medication from our facility into a patient's home and that can be extended to anything from a lab test to any kind of diagnostic or even medical device, for example. And so 
a lot of the underpinnings of what we designed and invented in many ways in the pharmacy world, we're reusing that now over and over again for dispensing medical devices, like a glucose meter, for example, or a continuous glucose monitor, or in, in the near future catheters and other medical equipment, all the way down to over a hundred different lab tests. So it's, it's amazing to see how the, the simple power of an API can really touch every aspect of healthcare. And today we operate in, in not only the pharmacy vertical, but, but diagnostics and telehealth and the unifying layer across all these three different business units that comprise our digital health platform, it's the API layer. And it's the, it's the connective tissue that ties all the disparate parts of our ecosystem together. And I think that's the, 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 the amazing and powerful aspect of an API is you can take so much complex stuff behind the scenes that don't even talk to each other systems that are so in their own silos, if you will. But when you tie it all together with a clean set of APIs, it, it can almost can almost turn into magic for that customer. And that's what we aspire to achieve every single day. And it's something that we're, we're still trying to accelerate our, our vision on. But uh, yeah, getting back to your point on uh, what does our API do today? Our, well, I can get more specific, and, and that's fascinating because I didn't, you know, I'm I'm so laser focused on pharmacy <laughs> yeah. specific technology. It, I didn't even realize that, you know, when I got a lab at a doctor's office, that that's also not an API based system. You know, you're, I, it's just I guess yeah. I, I think that like, was a, in the same way that you read our initial docs and had that aha moment. We've had that aha moment now, time and time again across every part of healthcare. Like you can take a a real world interaction. I think that's what the, the most powerful concept here is. These are physical real world interactions of physical product, whether it's a medication or a doctor visit over a video conference or a lab test that you have to physically collect a sample and mail it back into a lab. You can take all these physical real world healthcare experience and, and abstract them through a set of APIs. And that's where we've now see this aha moment or light bulb moment go off a couple times now in our history as a company over the years where We've seen it play out in the telehealth vertical, connecting providers with patients through an API, through our partners. And we've now seen it now come true in our most recent vertical and diagnostics, where our APIs now are involved in shipping out hundreds of different lab tests and integrating with lab partners downstream, and then sending test results from the labs back to patients and providers. And certainly we've been in the backdrop of a pandemic where all of this has been accelerated. And- mm -hmm. Anytime you can take away a real world interaction in the face of a pandemic and do it over a virtual setting, that's a good thing. And I think um, moving ahead, looking even past the pandemic, we think that a large part of healthcare can be done over a virtual setting now that we have multiple business units. Because pharmacy is, I would say, Dave, a really important part of the healthcare ecosystem, but you got to start with a doctor visit. You need to get to a prescription or you need to get to a diagnosis. So for us, it was all about coming full circle to make sure that we have all parts of virtual healthcare covered and all API'd or API-fied, if you will. I don't know what the verb is for that. <laughs> we got to come up with one. <laughs> it made, made total sense to me. Um, so I guess drilling down into the pharmacy API, if I was a customer and I had this idea for, let's say, I don't know, I wanted to sell uh, like hormones or something, what's available for me as a customer it from, if I went to use you as a service into, for dispensing meds. Yeah. Um, why don't we go through, that's a, that's a good example. I'll add on to that and maybe use a brand that maybe folks are, are familiar with a, a company like GoodRx, uh, a, an API workflow that we power today. And we'll walk through kind of how the APIs touch the GoodRx experience and, and what happens. So at a high level, you are you're on the GoodRx asset, you're, you're shopping for a medication and you might see their GoodRx Gold program, which is a, a premium subscription program that gives you access to deeper discounts on prescription products. You might go through and search for two or three of your medications and realize that the GoodRx Gold pricing is, is the best pricing on the page and you decide to click through to get your prescriptions in the mail. The mail integration is actually powered by Trupil behind the scenes, but this is where the entire API workflow kicks off. The, the first step in the process is GoodRx will collect all the demographic information from their patient. At that point, they will issue in our API workflow what's called a transfer request, one of our API endpoints. And 
a transfer request is the, the process of us going out and getting a prescription into our ecosystem. Because remember that no matter how much you, you build APIs around this, if you don't have a, a legal and valid prescription in your system, you're kind of stuck. You can't do anything. So there is this concept of bridging real world interactions with the API layer from a technology standpoint. So that first step is a transfer. And a transfer is nothing more than providing us information on how to go get that prescription. So the two most common ways that this happens in, in the real world are GoodRx will provide us the, the pharmacy information where the patient's prescription is, or they might provide us a doctor information or a contact of the provider that the patient uses. And depending on which information they provide, and sometimes they even provide both, we then go out to facilitate the transfer of that prescription. So we have a set of automated workflows and, and faxes that get sent out to requisite pharmacies that say, hey, you know, hey, CVS, we need day's prescription for metformin. I'm just making this up. And can you send this over to our pharmacy? This is a normal process that happens in the real world for what's known as pharmacy to pharmacy transfers. And a lot of it behind the scenes is we've automated a, a number of the steps, but there's still a manual step involved at the, at the local CVS level that needs to actually transfer that prescription into our pharmacy. And so once that prescription is transferred into our pharmacy, we then load it into our systems and we send a notification back to GoodRx or a webhook event, letting them know that we've got the prescription in our hand for metformin, we've got eight refills left on it, and here's the other information that we collected from that requisite pharmacy. The alternate path is we might get it from a doctor's office. We might reach out either using the Shortscript standard to request a new refill or a new prescription from that doctor's office. Or in some cases, we might fall back to an old fashioned method of picking up the phone and having folks from our customer ops center reach out to the doctor's office to say, our patient needs a refill for metformin. Can you write it into the True Pill pharmacy? So that's the first step in the process is, is getting that prescription. Now, we can spend a lot of time on the insurance workflows, which get really interesting when you start to introduce APIs around that. But in the GoodRx model, these are largely cash patients. So we're able to now show the patient a cash price that we send back to GoodRx. And so again, remember the, the patient is still in the GoodRx UI today. They decide they wanna buy it and they swipe their credit card online or enter all their information in. At which point the, the fun kicks off on our side. This is where now GoodRx will use another API endpoint and our most common endpoint, our fill request endpoint. This is the endpoint that our customers use to tell us to go ahead and ship that prescription or ship one of the fills off that prescription. And so I think it's an important point to note out here is unlike a typical pharmacy where just because we have the prescription that doesn't mean we ship out medications. We need explicit instructions from our customer telling us to ship out to their patient. And so in the fill request is where we'll get information like where to ship the medication. A lot of our partners and customers have a lot of custom branding and custom packaging requirements. It's in the fill request API where they'll tell us, I want to put in seasonal insert A. I want to put in the welcome letter because this is the first time user and I want to use customized packaging box C or letter D or whatever configuration they're, they're testing or using at that point for, for new customers. And all of this is passed to the fill request API. And from this point on, it's now inside our pharmacy ecosystem, our pharmacists, our pharmacy technicians are taking it through the different workflow steps. And it finally gets to the last step in the process where you get to a packing station and it gets packaged and shipped out to the patient. And again, a callback notification is sent to, to GoodRx. And along the way, there's probably, a, I'd say half a dozen different events and callbacks or, or webhook events that are sent to the customer along the way. So that's the, the high level overview of how this works. The thing that I think is extremely important about our platform is that a lot of patients will use a workflow that we power behind the scenes and they might not even know Truepill is involved. And I think that is, mm -hmm exactly by design. You are a GoodRx customer. You trust the GoodRx brand. We don't need to get in the way there. We want to make sure that we give our partners the ability to fully white label the experience to give their consumers the best possible UX, best possible consumer experience. And we operate behind the scenes to then meet the brand standards of, of that customer that we work with. Very cool. Um, I did have just a 
two quick follow-up questions. When I was a pharmacist and I would get a, a patient would come in and ask me to transfer a med, that was kind of a nightmare situation. <laughs> I'd have to call the other pharmacy, wait on hold, you know, get hung up on. What? Talk to me about how you like overcome that bottleneck and like on average, how long does it take you to, I'm assuming you do metrics around it, how, how long does it take to transfer prescriptions? Yeah, so we're very diligent about this and we turn around most of our transfers same business day, but there's a lot of paths we take to make sure we do that. Otherwise, this can sit, as, as you pointed out, if, if you work in a pharmacy setting, the transfer pile in the fax machine is probably the last thing <laughs> on your mind. It's, it's sort of the, if I have time at the end of the day, I'll get to it. But right. our customers want an, uh, an hour or two hour SLA. So we need to process this. And so the way we get around this is, is we'll send a number of automated faxes to the pharmacy to see if they will act on it. Now that has low conversion. Um, in terms of getting it back in, within a timely manner. Oftentimes we'll then engage our call center folks to make a pharmacy to pharmacy call. It'll be, excuse me, our, our call center reps that are sitting on the phone waiting to connect, go through the, the phone tree system. Oftentimes you're waiting 10, 15, 20, even 30 minutes to get a pharmacist on the other pharmacy on the line. At which point, once the pharmacist picks, picks up at the other retail pharmacy, we then patch through a pharmacist from our team to then handle the pharmacy to pharmacy phone transfer. So a lot of these are done over the phone. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say a good chunk are handled through the automated fax workflow, but it's, it's always subject to how busy that retail pharmacy is, what time of day it's coming in, a lot of variables that impact the, the time, but we sort of have our own rule set internally on how long we're willing to wait. And if we don't get it, we then initiate the phone process, which is painful. But once we get that pharmacist on the line, we can then do a phone to phone transfer on the spot. Our listeners can't see me, but but I'm just smiling here thinking about the fax machine and how like resilient it is in healthcare. It just doesn't <laughs> seem to want to go away. Of, uh, I, I, I said this the other day jokingly to our team that I think that the healthcare industry alone has kept, has kept the fax machine <laughs> industry alive. It's, it's crazy, but I think that's probably the last industry using fax machines, but it's, it's everywhere still. I know it's a while. It's all because there's, you know, this, this com computer to computer communication isn't built out. Yeah. Uh, my second follow-up question related to the pharmacy API is another workflow that sounds challenging to me from a user perspective is the benefits and insurance. Can you walk me through when, a, you know, there's, it, there's no standard for pharmacy benefits. Everyone's card's a little different. Can you walk me through sort of some of the design techniques you use to make sure, I guess, first, who enters that information? Is it the patient? Is it one of, is it like a technician on, the, on your customer end? And how do you make sure they're typing in the right numbers? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways we, we collect insurance for those very reasons that it, it's complex. And um, I, I'd say the, the best practices we've learned along the way, like if you look at our fill request documentation, you'll have specific fields for the BIN, the PCN, the RX group, and the cardholder ID. But in practice, what we realize is to your point, whether a customer is typing that in or the end patient's typing it in, it's prone to errors. And what mm -hmm. we've seen as a great fallback is always capture the image of the card itself. It's amazing that once you have the image of the card, now there are many different processes internally that our partners and customers are, are using to then get that information into the API. But some of these include they'll have manual transcription happening on their side to read off the, the card and type it in. And then they, and then the API call gets submitted. We've seen um, manual entry by the, by the patient, as you pointed out, kind of the old fashioned way. We've seen several companies using image recognition techniques to then take an image of a card and run some computer vision and OCR to extract the, the, the cardholder ID and bin and PCN. And we've seen some sophisticated approaches to as you mentioned, every card format is different. So this is not a trivial problem of look mm -hmm. at just this part of the card to get the bin number. You have to interpret almost where the bin number is. And we've got a plethora of now two-sided insurance cards in the market today. Where <laughs> it's crazy, but I've seen cards where the bin and PCN, arguably the most important things on the card are like the smallest font size on the whole card. And it's, it's beyond me why that goes on the back of the card and the smallest font size possible, but that is the, the nature of it. And so the way we default to this is we have our partners type it in and enter it into the API programmatically. So for us, 100% of the time we're receiving it programmatically, 
but there's a lot of work behind the scenes by our partners to get it into that format. Mm -hmm. And so we understand that and we understand mistakes can happen. It's a normal course of data entry or even image recognition that's prone to errors. And so we always ask for the card image as well. Send in the card image as part of the API payload. And what you'll see that's magical, and you, you've probably seen this yourself, Dave, is when a pharmacist has the card and they know intrinsically which payer it is, which PBM it is, they have in their head like hundreds of different rule sets that they know how to operate to manipulate the, the group ID, for example, or mm -hmm. manipulate the dash zero one, the, the suffix or the uh, the patient, the, the member of the family, for example, they've got all these tricks in their trade to ultimately get it through. And, and what we've seen is when you give that pharmacist the ability to backfall into the card and the image and decide to troubleshoot it themselves because they get back an error that says mismatched cardholder ID, well, that's when they have full control over deciding how they need to get it through because they have the card right in front of them. And I think that's a powerful concept of an API of we're just uploading an image of the card. It's not it's nothing special, but it, it does get, I'd say almost all our, all our fills done that can be insurance reimbursed. Now, certainly you run into cases where you hit a dead end where the insurance is terminated or the product is not covered, but that's a whole different set of problems in our industry. Just for a little bit of context here, I, I haven't worked in a pharmacy, a retail pharmacy since 1997. And this is the same problem. It hasn't you know, changed a whole lot. It hasn't <laughs> changed. Isn't that wild? And it, it crazy. May, as you were like um, laying out the problem, I was just thinking of just, if I just take a complete step back and, and look at our healthcare system from a distance, it's just so crazy that that's, this is how we go about administering and adjudicating claims with these wildly divergent codes, numbers, um, and it made yeah, me think crazy. I saw like, just to give an example of this in the real world, like we can automate around a lot of these uh, situations where we've built the rule sets to understand how different PBMs process different bins and insurances. But every once in a while, you'll hit a new use case that our rules engine hasn't caught up to. <laughs> and this is where a pharmacist superpower comes in. And you'll have someone like our, our pharmacist in charge at, at Hayward Quinn look at it and say, oh, this is the, the new ESI card. It's like, well, Nobody told our engineering team about the new ESI card and a new way the information is laid out. And now with this new ESI card, you have to enter in the suffix for the cardholder ID slightly differently. And so all these different rule sets, they just continue to keep evolving and we, we try to keep up and automate, but you know, every once in a while there will be a new rule or a different way the information is presented. And um, our, our pharmacy team is, is the best in the business in trying to figure out how to do that. And then eventually bring it to our engineering team to say, engineering team, I need you guys to automate this one because I don't want to do it again, but here's the problem. So that's the, I guess, the beauty of bringing technology into solving a lot of manual processes. It, it's true. This is still like a lot of resources that are going towards a problem that from my perspective could be easily solved. And it, it makes me think that, and I actually think about this pretty regularly. It's like, do we, should we have a, a national patient ID? Because if there was a national patient ID and you could use you know, cryptography or something to to assure that you're the right person and you're approving um, a company like yourself to go ahead and contact your insurance company on your behalf. It could all just be seamless one-to-one -one communication. You can have an API directly to the payer and the physician can have an API to the payer and adjudicate the claim right when the prescription, or at least get the real the real-time pricing. I mean, that's another huge problem from a medication adherence perspective. Physicians for the most part have no idea what the financial implications are gonna be of writing that prescription because they're not getting the claim back. They don't know what the patient's deductible is. Uh, they don't know what the coinsurance is and it's just, um, which causes the patient to show up at the pharmacy and uh, have a huge bill. And then the physician gets a call saying that prescribe something else. It's just, mm -hmm. there's just so much, um, so much wasted space and these problems that like probably could be solved with just changes in, in regulations and infrastructure. Anyway, off topic a yeah. little bit, you don't need to comment on that, but <laughs> it's my podcast and the important topics that we, we need to get, discuss a little bit more. Um, so switching gears a little bit, can you explain to the audience what URAC is? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, URAC is an accreditation standard. Um, it stands for, if I remember correctly, um, 
me try to remember it's utilization. I'm going to guess the letter utilization review, something accreditation commission. So URAC is, is sort of the gold standard in pharmacy accreditation. We've got uh, the, we have two pharmacy locations that have this accreditation standard. I, I remember this uh, process vividly because I was, I wouldn't say in the middle of it, but certainly involved from a product and technology standpoint. And it was a rigorous process to get the mail order and the the specialty accreditation. But this is the uh, the gold standard in our industry. There's only 10 facilities in the state of California. I believe we're the 10th facility to get the mail order accreditation. And so it was something that, that we're really proud of as a company that it, it continues to sort of set a really high quality bar, especially as as telehealth and, and the direct-to-consumer healthcare movement rapidly shifts into this uh, this new type of healthcare, we've always taken a very patient-first or patient-safety approach to everything we do. And URAC was just another, another, another stamp of approval for that to demonstrate that you can do telehealth in a safe environment for the patient, in a convenient environment for the patient, without compromising any of the safety standards. And in many ways, URAC causes you to up those standards across the board compared to a traditional retail pharmacy. And so we operate against that highest common denominator of, of requirements that URAC presents uh, for us in order to maintain that accreditation. Yeah, congratulations. I noticed that when I was perusing your website, that's that's a big accomplishment, very cool. Um, and, that, and it comes with you know some specific requirements. And one of them is that that URAC requires you to, to, to collect certain information like drug, um, like drug allergy history, et cetera. Can you, uh, and when I was looking at your APIs, I was sort of curious, you know, I can see that you're collecting the drug allergy history, but I'm curious about like, I couldn't figure out what standards you were using to collect the allergens and the conditions, et cetera. Yeah, there, there's a whole host of like tools underneath the hood, ranging from Metaspan and other other data sets that we pull. But but you're right that every time a fill request comes in to, to request a refill, you do need to provide the allergy information, the list of medications the patients takes, and any other known medications. And behind the scenes, what we're what we're doing with that information that we expose to some degree in our patient safety APIs, but underneath the hood, when we run this through our operating system, our pharmacy OS, if you will. We're doing the standard drug-drug interaction check. We're doing a drug-allergy interaction check. We're doing a drug-condition interaction check. All the three basic um, drug utilization review steps that happen. And we're using a tool like Metaspan, which is a, sort of an industry standard tool behind the scenes that will take the inputs of existing medications. And we've had to build a lot of translational layers where you're taking unstructured data in through the API, and you have to structure it against sort of a set of known allergies or a set of known conditions or, or medications and allowing you to then run this against a standard DUR database or DUR uh, checker, if you will. And we use, we happen to use Metaspan underneath the hood. And I think that being able to do this at the API level where we can take the inputs, we can use a translational layer to standardize the data or into a canonical form and then run it against these interaction checks, it opens up the door for so many things in the future. I mean, if anyone is following today, the the rise of, of pharmacogenetics, for example, as, as a future state, when you think about now we have to get into what is the interaction between a drug and a person's genome or genetics, if you will, there's just so many possibilities of, well, how do you now in practice do a drug gene mapping of if you have a certain gene marker or genetic marker how do you know that warfarin is not safe for you? How do you build that into your workflow? And I think the, the power of APIs really can help you unlock that as we, as we get to that future state, because we're now seeing, at least in the United States, where genetic testing is becoming more and more commonplace. We probably, at several points in our life, maybe tried a 23andMe test or a different genetic test. And, and those are all the initial inputs to overall getting into pharmacogenetics and understanding the interaction between drugs and genes, which I think will be the next state of unlocking this whole world of, of pharmacogenetics. So a lot of stuff we can do. Um, right now, I'd say we're still focused on some of those base layers of, of a DUR review that are required by our URAC accreditation. And uh, we're following that, but kind of built our system in a way to anticipate all the future inputs on how we ensure the patient's safety and provide a, a much larger 
benefit to the patient. Cause maybe there's a whole separate topic day, but in, in my experience now spending like four or five years in healthcare, I think that one of the most underutilized resources in our entire healthcare system is the pharmacist. When you look at what they're active, actively doing, but compare that against what they're trained to do, it is a gross underutilization of, of their skill set and something that I hope we get a chance to tackle and, and solve. Yeah, I mean, my career is pretty much dedicated to that. You know, everything I work on for the most part during my day job at OmniCell is focused on automation and automating low-value tasks. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to unleash the, the power of pharmacy clinical services. So the more that I can automate, the more pharmacists will have time to go by the bedside and offer education, counseling, do pharmacogenetic counseling, et cetera. Um, we really have to get them away from distribution. Really like, have machines do what machines do well and have people do what people do well. Cause there's a lot of things that pharmacists do right now that machines can do as well or better than a person can, fortunately. Uh, related to that standards question. So let me try to imagine. So if I'm a customer and I have, uh, let's say I'm NERCs and I have a new patient, when the patient is, I'm trying to understand the user journey here. So the patient, when they enter the allergy, does it give them a list that's um, from Medispan that's gonna pop up Because as opposed to writing in a free text allergy? So every customer today does it a little differently. Some of them okay. taking a free text and we massage and standardize the data behind the scenes. We're now getting to a world where we can standardize some of that or build uh, these JavaScript types of widgets where a customer can embed that and they can sort of get that nice type ahead feel of they type in an allergy and they'll see the standardized set of fields to, to be able to pull in. I think that's the world we're moving into today. Uh, it's sort of a hybrid of some folks offer the type ahead, some folks take in unstructured data and let us deal with the problem. So you're going to get sort of a mixed bag, but I think where we need to get to as an industry is in the same way you go to a Shopify website or use a Stripe widget to check out, you're entering your credit card information the same way every single time. It's, it's oftentimes saved and you can reuse it across different websites. Like if you purchase from one Shopify web store, you get to reuse that checkout information the next time across a different store. I think that everything going back to insurance information to, to this is, is things that you can do through a standardized method where your health profile can follow you where you go. And I think that's a, a concept that we're, we're still very early on in its infancy, but we, we like the concept of in the same way you OAuth to a website or single sign-on and your identity carries through different websites, are there ways that your health profile in a, in a secure manner can be applied to different fields where you need to enter in things like your allergies and, and known conditions? Because frankly, when you get an elderly patient in the country and ask them to list out their medications, that is a not a easy task. It often involves getting your medicines, getting them in front of you, reading the bottles. It's not a, a fun experience. Most folks don't even know the names of their meds by clinical formulation, at least. They might know it, if you're lucky, by brand name, but you deal with all sorts of things like if you're if you're really good at spelling medications, then you have a skill that I don't, or a lot of people don't have. Another colossal problem. And when I was, when I was managing teams of pharmacists who had to do transitions of care and take medication histories, you're right. You know, most patients don't remember what medications are on. And then the pharmacist has to, you know, call lists from different places, call this pharmacy, call that pharmacy. If you want a, a comprehensive list, and we studied it and it took our, on average, my pharmacy staff about a half hour to do a medication, like an accurate medication list. And we also yeah. found that the list that they were starting from had on average four errors <laughs> on top of the fact that it was, t it was time consuming to actually do it properly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've looked at now medication names probably for four or five years and I still can't spell most of them. It's, it's, uh, I look at it every single day. And so you can imagine what a, <laughs> yeah. uh, a senior citizen or anyone dealing with multiple meds is dealing with today. It's, it's not easy. And that's another, yeah, another problem that that's just not a cohesive way where people's prescriptions can follow them wherever they're at. I mean, yep. they do pretty well if you get your prescriptions at one pharmacy all the time, but there's so many people who get their, their scripts filled at different places. Um, switching gears again, 
I'm curious about your telehealth vertical. Talk to me a little bit about your foray, foray into this space and what's, what's TruePro's role? Yeah, so today we have a telehealth business unit that is comprised of a network of providers. And the network of providers are generally practitioners of, of medicine, more from a family medicine generalist generalist standpoint. And they're prescribing across a range of conditions from women's health, mental health, men's health. And they're primarily used now as as telehealth providers when our partners need to access our telehealth network. So I'll give you a good example. Last year, we did a program with the United Healthcare Group that involved prescribing flu medications to over 400,000 senior citizens in our country. And we deployed our telehealth network to go out to screen these patients and then begin to write prescriptions for flu medication, in this case, um, generic Tamiflu, a common flu medication. And this was done all through our provider network, the, the network of providers that we have on our platform that are using our EMR to diagnose patients. So patients would come in, they'd answer a quick questionnaire about kidney disease, whether they have a history of kidney issues, whether they have any allergies to flu medications like a Tamiflu, along with other demographic health condition, other medications they take. And this information gets piped over through our APIs through our, to our providers. And our providers enter the EMR portal, our EMR in this case, and they review a patient profile and they make the determination on whether they can safely prescribe Tamiflu to that patient. So you can see here, this is an example of when we got into telehealth, it was a natural extension to, to the pharmacy vertical. When we talked about pharmacy, we were dealing with a lot of our customers. We were transferring prescriptions. Many of them, we were getting prescriptions electronically prescribed directly into the TruePill ecosystem. Now in this next part of our business, we're also the entity that's authoring these prescriptions or working with patients to do the telehealth mm. visit. So it all flows back into our system. And so we build a continuous loop where someone in the TruePill network or one of our provider networks reviews a patient, they write a prescription, if the patient chooses to get it at TruePill, then it comes through the TruePill ecosystem and everything is a seamless uh, workflow and the medication shows up in the mail. So that's kind of what we uh, what we set out to build. And, and we were successful in 2020 scaling out our, our telehealth network. Today, we do over 50,000 telehealth visits in any given week and, and growing rapidly. And so it's no surprise that the surge in demand for telehealth is certainly driven a lot by the pandemic and, and, and covid and it's, um, it's just a core piece of infrastructure that if you're going to consumerize healthcare and move it into a virtual setting, you have to have a telehealth network as, as part of your core tools of, of infrastructure. And so that was a key piece for us to set out to build. You coined a term, I noticed on your website, BYOP, not as cool as BYOB, <laughs> <laughs> bring your own provider. What, what does that mean? So I'm trying to understand who are your customers? Are they small physician groups? Are they you know, larger um, IDNs? Who's using yeah. your services? So these are a couple of networks of telehealth providers across the country that we stitch together. But, but this uh, bring your own provider concept is, is rooted in this basic premise as a company that when you come to TruePill, we today have a menu of offerings ranging from diagnostic solutions to telehealth solutions to pharmacy solutions. And we never tell our customer that you have to use everything off our menu. Instead, it's think of the things you need to power your consumer experience and, and buy those off the menu. Choose the things that you need to stitch together your experience. And the bring your own provider mindset is one where you may already have your providers that you're ready to prescribe, but we need you to, you might only need our EMR platform. For example, you just need our off the shelf EMR tool to plug into and you're ready to bring your own providers. There's a couple customers in our ecosystem today that came to us and said, well, we don't like any of the EMRs out there. They're too clunky, they're too heavy, or they've been retrofitted to support telehealth, but they're not really telehealth first. We set out with the mindset of let's build the industry's first telehealth only EMR. In other words, if a provider wanted to use our EMR for an in-person doctor visit, it probably wouldn't work. In fact, it's the opposite. It's designed only for telehealth, whether it's an asynchronous or a, a video consult or phone consult. It's designed for that specific use case. And a lot of our customers say, well, I already have doctors. Can we just use your EMR? And we say, sure. It just goes back to this mindset of 
you can use one of the options within our, our core suite of infrastructure and products. And that's where that concept came from. It was, it was actually a real customer that approached us to say, well, we already have our own doctors. Can we, can we use your EMR? And we said, yes. And interestingly, that same customer in, in, in the recent months has come back to us to say, well, now can we actually leverage your providers to expand into states that we don't operate? So they had doctors in certain states their model is working, their business is scaling. And now instead of hiring providers in other states, they said, can we just tap into your network to now scale faster? And we said, sure. And so this is another example of how you can start with one piece of infrastructure being the EMR and then eventually tap into our business line needing additional telehealth horsepower. And so now this customer is integrated into our telehealth business and scaling nicely across uh, all 50 states. So we've seen all these different instantiations of how customers start with one product, but then expand into a whole suite of tools within our digital health platform. Got it. Yeah, I can, I can totally see it right now. So you basically have all the pipes that someone would need to you know, solve whatever business problem they're trying to solve. Very cool. Um, I'm someone who's, if you can't tell by my line of questioning, someone who's like pretty alert. I, I work in data science, so I'm pretty <laughs> allergic to uh, free text fields. Now that you have an EHR, are you using, I have two questions related to the EHR, are you using standards like SNOMED CT to document the clinical terms? And then my follow-up to that is, is your patient EHR record, is it interoperable or shareable with other EHRs to sort of, you know, connect a patient's medical history with with their other providers? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I can tell you that um, at, at a high level, when you build the EMR and you've also built the pharmacy operating system, a lot of these data problems go away because you have a canonical representation mm -hmm. within your systems that you can operate in. And we operate through JSON and a payload that's easy to use between systems. Now, when you start interacting with the real world, it's not as easy because there mm -hmm. are different standards. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that exists in our industry is that there's no standard protocol. If you even look at something like the HL7 standard between V2 and V3 and, and the FHIR standard, for example, um, you, you'll start to see how everybody has interpreted the standard their own way. There are subtle nuances and differences in how each entity does it. We recently integrated with a very large diagnostics provider that does a, a proprietary uh, colon cancer test. And it's probably not hard to guess who they are, but they used a version of HL7 that had its own nuances and its own flavors that then you now need to retrofit to build against to get data flowing from our systems to theirs. So I would say that in many respects, we're very open to this, this concept of interoperability, but every time we start run into it, as much as we build against standards in terms of HL7 and, and the FHIR standard, mm -hmm. every time we run into it, in terms of an interoperability situation where we have to move data from our systems to another company's, we see slight permutations. There's never been a case where, oh, cool, you follow the standard the same way we did. This is how we both interpret it. Cool, let's pipe the data over. There's always some custom work or custom development. I think that's a problem in our industry that everyone is operating on different standards, different versions of standards, and then different interpretations of that standard that make this difficult. And so, I think there's still a long way to go from a work standpoint to get to true interoperability. But I think that the benefit we have seen is when you own the EMR infrastructure and the pharmacy side of the business, at least within our own ecosystem, we, we don't run into that problem. So we can control our own world as best we can and then you know, live to fight another day in the <laughs> real world when we're connecting with other third-party systems that use a whole lot of different standards. And, and, and that's just on the telehealth side. When you get into the, the pharmacy side and you, you look into the NCPDP XML standard, all sorts of issues there and, and variations that you'll see across um, the script standard. Although, although I will say the XML standard is less interpreted than the HL7 standards. It's, it follows the, the design of the intended design, at least more closely, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, I agree. I, I've seen the same issues and you know, the, the standards definitely help, but when I get deep in the weeds with the data and being a pharmacist, it's, it's easy for me to look in these data fields or look at these, uh, these um, packages and see, you know, quite quickly that, that a lot of the standards in some ways are just sort of strong suggestions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
and, and they, they do help. That's all but it I, is, yeah. But uh, but I definitely have to. I, we also have to do you know similar work to to coalesce all the data that we're that we're pulling in from different locations. It's a great conversation. Just about out of time, I have just one last question. First, I want to know like how COVID has helped or hurt the adoption of technology for for Truepill, and then what's your vision, your near term and your your long term vision for the future of healthcare. Yeah, COVID has been a huge accelerator for our business and a catalyst in many ways. Um, it's almost like our own I told you so moment of we've been talking about telehealth, <laughs> we've been talking about virtual care for years, and then the pandemic hits and, and you're sort of the right time, right place building an infrastructure company, trying to help everyone move into this virtual world. And, and guess what, the whole world was in a matter of weeks or months had to switch to a completely telehealth first world. And I think that there's no going back. There is going to be a continuation of what we kind of term as the new normal of if you've experienced telehealth for the first time, maybe in the last year, you're probably not going to go back to the old way unless absolutely necessary. And I think that is a, a turning point that just we were going, going to go through that evolution and shift eventually, but that might have taken a few more years. And all of a sudden, it, it sort of you got the Band-Aid ripped off and now we're in a full-blown telehealth world. And I think that's good for overall healthcare. As far as vision for the future of the company or even healthcare is, I think there's there's no shortage of the types of things you can do over a virtual care setting or a digital setting. And I think that more than 80% of healthcare interactions can move over to a digital world. And that's what we wanna to continue to fuel and begin to see that shift from things that could be done in person or in the physical world, move into a digital world. and. I think overall, we're seeing the consumerization of healthcare happen as we speak. We've seen the story play out in just about every industry, but for a variety of reasons, I think many of the problems we discussed today in healthcare, it's just been a little slower, but I, mm -hmm. I think we're in that full-blown shift today and just super excited to sort of play a role in, in that overall shift. And if in the next three, four, five, ten 10 years, all of consumer has all of healthcare has shifted this consumer first world and, and we had a key role in that. I think that would be that would be awesome and something we'd be looking forward to keep pushing. Cool. Well, thank you, Sid, for coming on and uh, congratulations on all your success thus far. And I'm excited to see what you guys next. So so thanks again. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thank you for listening to FutureDose.Tech. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast on your favorite social media outlets. Be sure to stay connected to the Pharmacy Podcast Network and return for your next FutureDose.Tech episode coming soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.